Strong men create easy times. Easy times create weak men. Weak men create tough times. Mm -hmm. He said to me, many will not understand, but you have to raise warriors. Trial by combat. Trial by combat. Chris Chris George said it. I was waiting for Keith to say it. Chris George said it. We should oh, put in you trial by totally combat. set that up for. I was like, here, here goes Keith. Here, he just alley ooped that, and Keith went and just literally jumped six feet and dunked it. On this episode of Real Estate Insiders Unfiltered, we talk about Fed policy. We talked about how to make it so that buyer's agent compensation could be financed in the loan. We talked about the importance of the National Association of Realtors. It is deep. Tune in. You talk about it privately. We talk about it publicly. This is the Real Estate Insiders Unfiltered Podcast. Welcome again to the Real Estate Insiders Unfiltered Podcast. I'm your host, James Dwiggins, along with my co-host, Crazy Uncle Keith. <laughs> yes, sir. Keith Robinson with the hat for the win. Who did we yes. have on the show today? We have Chris George, the CEO and founder of CMG Financial. It is the largest privately held mortgage bank in the United States of America. Billion. Billion with a B kids and uh the former president of the mortgage bankers association we went all over the board with him we covered fed fed policy we covered rates we talked about affordability we talked about can the mortgage industry come in and bail us out of all this commission insanity uh, he took us to church on how he felt about the lawsuits in general student loan debt and, and the deficit and yeah, NAR. He, a, he preached on I mean on it NAR. Was, it was yeah. it was very this is a good insightful. One. This is a good one, kids. <laughs> Buckle up, get ready. You are going to dig it. Put it in Tune your ears, kids. In. Chris, welcome back to the podcast. We are uh absolutely excited to have you back in 2024. You were officially our first episode. First when, guest. Uh, we did first one guest. episode, just That's you true. and I. First so guest. second episode, but first guest. So yeah. We have, uh, we have, we've grown just a little bit in, uh, attendance and viewers and listeners. Uh, yeah, my mom keeps listening to it over and over and over <laughs> on repeat to boost the numbers. So she's doing her job. Mom. Thanks. Thanks for yeah, listening, mom. There's that. So, uh, I think it's probably your mom and my mom for that matter. Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, Chris, uh, give just the viewers and listeners just a real quick background on you and CMG, so they, you know, they can have a little bit of context in your knowledge in the mortgage space, which is vast. Um, and then why you're here to talk about sort of 2024, what you think is going to come, et cetera. So we'll start there. Uh, well, first off, James and Keith, thanks for having me part of this again. I didn't realize I was that much of a guinea pig uh, back then. <laughs> we didn't tell you. Evidently, yeah. it, it yeah. panned out for us. It, uh, I do think yes. that we did break some new ground of um, Keith's uh, pet project of the 100-year mortgage. But I'm telling you. we probably will not cover off on that much today. But um, <laughs> by way of some fast background, this is the 42nd year I've been in the mortgage industry. CMG celebrated its 30th year as a company earlier in the middle part of last year in July. Congrats. Uh, it's all I've ever done. Uh, last year, we did just shy of $22 billion worth of production. Um, Sheesh. I'm a former... Uh, California Mortgage Bankers Association chairman. I'm also the former chairman of the Mortgage Bankers Association nationally. Um, I'm here locally uh, in the Bay Area. I have four boys and a fantastic wife. And all four of my boys work for the company. It was awesome seeing them That's grow awesome. up professionally. So it's a pretty yeah. cool thing. And, and again, in all seriousness, thanks for having me back. I truly enjoy these kinds of conversations where we actually cover on off on topics that are useful for people to know more about and yeah. can kind of help guide their businesses. Yeah, we, uh, thanks for being here. We, we totally agree. And, and I've, I've gotten to know Chris, uh, for, for the audience uh, over, over many years now and truly one of the smartest guys in the space. So we're, we're, we're privileged to have him here and talk about it. I'll start with the first question. Then Keith will take a few and we'll see where this thing ends up. Uh, yeah. okay. I, you know, I'll ask just, I want to, throw some controversial questions out because certainly the mortgage industry has had a very difficult year, uh, in 2023, it will be an understatement. Um, did Powell get it right? Was he too aggressive recession? What are your thoughts? Let's just do Let's dive right in. 
Well, okay. So let's talk about a couple of things. Let's first um, talk about 2023 versus 2022. Not all of us had uh, tough years. There were a few companies out there. The builders, by the way, uh, the builder mortgage companies probably had a positive year in relationship to 22 versus 23. Sure. Uh, as an organization, through September of last year, we were up almost 18% year over year, which is a big deal. And I can talk more about why that occurred in part because of some acquisitions we made, but also sure. in part because of some of the strategic decisions we made about how we were going to go about getting business. Um, it, every so Let's set the stage as it relates to the Fed's monetary policy. Every single time there has been an inflationary period in America since I've tracked it back to the mid-50s. Every single time there's a recession afterwards. In fact, I will send you a graph that you can post, as I'm saying this on your podcast, if you would like, or distribute to people that are looking at this as a document. It will show you every single time that there's been an inflationary run-up in the marketplace, there's a recession that follows it. Powell's been threading the needle here with trying not to have either one of those get too far out of the norm. So have an inflation take over, which happened multiple times. The one that I remember the most is the early 80s when prime rate went up to 20.5%, or frankly, has to drop rates too much, which really is what occurred in COVID. So we got down to an interest rate environment that we're never going to see again. You're not going to mm -hmm. see two and two and a half percent 30 year fixed rate mortgages again. If right. you got one, and a lot of people did, uh, hang on to it because yeah. you're not going to buy that thing again. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. that, that loan represents the beginning of your uh, rental property, which is again one of the reasons it's exacerbating inventory is people are saying, I don't know that I want to give up my loan. I want right. to keep it home. And I, and if I need cash, I'll take a second mortgage out. So I do think Pal is doing the best he can do. I think there have been a couple of false starts. So in the beginning part of December, interest rates dropped pretty significantly. Um, then they ran back up again toward the end of December, early January, and they're coming back down a little bit right now. As of this moment, uh, a little after in the afternoon on a Tuesday, we're hovering right around 4% on the 10-year, 404 right now. <laughs> opened about eight points higher today. And the concern is, is about whether or not the technology stocks are going to start feeling the pain. There's a fair amount of layoffs happening in the technology world right now. Yeah. You know. yeah. And so I think he's getting it as close to right as you can get it. Uh, my personal opinion is that I don't care how close he gets. I just don't need the whipsaw. Yeah. So pace, it was right? great yeah. that rates got that low, but there was just so much business with, again, so few um, businesses to handle it. So the backlog in the, in the marketplace and the same thing's happening right now. I also think what happens is the media disproportionately blows interest rates out of <laughs> proportion. And as a result, I think people say, hey, honey, we're not buying because rates are going to be prohibitive. But there's a lot of ways to buy homes in an increasing interest rate market, not the least of which is intermediate arms and temporary buy downs and so forth. Yeah. So I, I do think the media grabs onto this and makes it worse than it may actually be. Mm. Today, Shocker. the car loan is about six and a half to seven percent. That's not unaffordable for a guy that got into the market when prime was at 20 and a half. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, to follow up on the Powell question, just because he's not going to listen, so we can make fun of him a little bit. In December, like a couple weeks before, he went, I've never seen a pivot as fast or as aggressive from a languaging standpoint from the Fed. One meeting, it was hire for longer. We're going to do what we need to do. We're data dependent. Two weeks late, 10 days later, actually, it was, was. it was like a whole nother Powell. It was like fun time Powell showed up and he started talking about cuts and as many as five in the next, you know, in 2024 and the market like loved it. Market went bananas. Have you ever seen a pivot that quickly from a, from tonality and an approach? And what do you attribute that to, if anything? Well, I think that by, uh, I'll answer the second question first. I think mm -hmm. the pivot was largely based politically. I think that mm. there's some concern about what's happening with a, yeah. with a, this being a political year. I think that there's some concern about, 
um, President Biden's incumbency. I think there's concern about momentum that's being established, which appears to be the front runner, be Donald Trump. Mm. Uh, I think that there is uh, these are factors that that the marketplace doesn't tend to be able to predict. So if the administration wants to improve pricing to give it some form of uh, tailwind to help it go into the election, that you'll see that happening probably in February, March or April of this year. From our prediction, and I think one of the things that you were we were kicking around before we went live, what do I think rates are going to go? I wouldn't count on rates being substantially lower in March, April and May. I would expect them to be lower in July, August and September. Mm. For a couple of reasons. One, I think you're going to finally be able to see fundamentals come into line to determine whether or not the market is really slowing down. And you're going to be able to absorb some of the layoffs that are happening industry-wide. The second thing is you're getting close to election time and people only remember what you ate for lunch, not what you had you know, three weeks ago for breakfast. And so I think what the, what the Fed policy is going to get a lot of pressure from the administration to get one last push to be able to remain in office I think that's something you're going to see in July, August or September. Um, I, I only want to emphasize this to your listeners, that while it does sound like interest rates are higher, and they are, of course, yeah, uh, we should have never gone as low. And everybody seems to compare, well, it's at six and a half. And, you know, two years ago, we were at two and a half. You should right. never even compare that. that that's right. a market, yeah. not something that's, that you can use as a barometer. Mm-hmm. And I've been reading a fair amount. I mean, I know that, it feels like, quote unquote, a lot of people are at two and a half percent on their 30 year fixed. But I don't I, I haven't looked up the number. I probably could find it. But it's not as many like it's, it's not, not like it's it's not as many as we think. And I've been reading and I'm curious your thoughts on this, that the inflection point for interest rate in mass is somewhere, you know, low five percent, around five percent at that point the math would be infallible, right? For, it would make sense for, mo- uh, I think it was 48% of the of homeowners to either trade up, refi. But if we get down to that rate, there's nearly half of homeowners who would be not rate locked if that's truly a thing. Is that right? Well, so those, you're I know right you can't quote point. those statistics, but does that sound right? Yep. That sounds about almost dead on. Uh, there are some statistics that the Mortgage Bankers Association puts out as well as we run our own book. So we service about $100 billion worth of business on our own. Pretty good sample size, Chris. That's a pretty good sample size. (laughs) That's a pretty good sample size, $100 billion. Yeah. What'd you you learn when you dug through the files? uh, Just a a small local company. So, you know, we're just uh, trying to hold our own in the the vast sea of real estate. So uh, what we look at, is a couple of things. Keep in mind that our marketplace really started increasing pretty significantly in late 21 and early 22. We had an actually, and most companies in the mortgage industry had a pretty decent first quarter of 2022, but mm-hmm. interest rates rose dramatically during that time. Yeah. So if you start thinking about the period of time that we have had an opportunity to have above five to five and a half percent market, it really began in about April of 2022. So right. we're, we're a year and a half coming up on two years worth of increased interest rates. Yeah. This is in an environment where we are as low as the market has ever tracked the percentage of purchases versus refinances. So from that point on, refinances fell off a cliff. And that's why so many companies are suffering, at least from my side, in the ability to be able to keep their margins up and their production up because a big segment, which is generally between 20 to 25 percent of the market, is refinance. Those numbers are basically zero, right? Yeah. 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 So I think there's pent up demand. There, There are people that are looking to refinance. The other thing that I think you ought to take in consideration, the folks that did buy and put down minimal amounts in 2021 probably have the opportunity to be able to refinance today even though their interest rate may have been in the fours and the fives as things were increasing up they're still paying mortgage insurance etc so they may be able to reduce their interest rate if interest rates were around five to five and a half yeah okay so that's the tipping point um or a tipping point maybe not the tipping point let me shift gears a little around affordability. You and I have talked, we talked about this on the last podcast. This is a particularly, this is one I have a lot of passion around just because 
it's it's important, right? We need to have housing that is affordable uh, for all market segments. We have a problem with affordability. Property values keep going up. That's a good thing. We want that. Interest rates spiked. We've we've covered that. That's you know that's not our favorite thing, but it is what it is. How do we solve for this affordability issue? And I won't bring up the hundred year mortgage, but how do we solve for the affordability? I am going to talk about something that is controversial, even perhaps. I'll take the the mantle of your controversy off of your 100-year mortgage and and bring it over here. And I'm not going to go to a two or 500-year mortgage. We're we're, we're going to stick with with something more, a little more mundane. Um, So let's take a step back. What drives up the price of a home in terms of trying to make it affordable. And first of all, affordability is in some ways sort of like beauty. It's held within the eye of the beholder. Mm-hmm. For in the Bay Area, your average, or even here in the East Bay, your average median income is something in the neighborhood of one hundred and forty-five to one hundred and sixty thousand right. dollars. Right. That isn't what the same is. Is the same case in Biloxi, Mississippi, or or uh, Murfreesboro, Tennessee, mm-hmm. or other parts of the country, particularly places where people are moving because of the affordability. Idaho, Tennessee, and what used to be Texas, although I will tell you, I'm not sure Texas fits into affordability any longer, at least the parts that people have moved to, like Austin, Dallas, Dallas. Mm. Uh, San Antonio, et cetera. But clearly places like Idaho, clearly places like Tennessee still offer, and, and other parts of the country still offer a, a, an ability to be able to acquire land at a price that you can build a home in the mid twos, mid threes, and maybe even low fours. And because of the the influx of people, there's a lot of business there. So there's still um, folks that make a decent amount of money. If you're talking affordability in the Bay Area, you're going to have to start addressing a couple of things. And we are doing some of this ourselves anecdotally to see if I can maybe move the needle. Number one, you're going to have to talk about how do you build an affordable home? Mm-hmm. There are fundamental things that cost the same, whether you're in Dade County, Florida, or Contra Costa <clears throat> County, California. You're in a situation where lumber, core products, core labor, et cetera, is, is all rising. Um, in the Bay Area particularly, it is very difficult to hire any construction crews that are not union. Now, I'm not mm-hmm. against unions, but I am going to tell you, tell you that in the past, the non-union sales force had a different pay scale than the union sure. yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It's not so controversial. It, it's factual. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> very true. But what yeah. has occurred that it's been so competitive to get people that mm. those people that were non-union have decided to become and work for union shops because of the amount of pay that the union shops are able to get to them. Mm-hmm. So there's a fundamental cost of the construction and the, the material. Then Labor. let's talk land yeah so what we're doing and then i'm going to talk about other ways to solve it with product but what we're doing and you can do this yourself this is just the world of chris george being silly in my mind i bumped into a guy um he looks like hagrid from the uh (laughs) yeah potter movies uh, yeah uh, yeah yeah. big harry he's the big harry one right just like him. Yeah. And I met the guy, was helping him with a build that he was doing in Oakland. And then he says, hey, I got this other business. I'd be wondering if you'd be interested in what's your other business. Essentially, he builds um, small homes, uh, mm-hmm. 800 square feet, 1,000 square feet, and 1,200 square feet. I think there's a, a bill or a new rule in California. I think it's like SB9 or something. Yeah. that talks about um, the um, the ability to have a 1,200 square foot ADU, an accessible dwelling Yeah. Unit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my own curiosity was, okay, well, how much could you build one of these for? And he's giving me the price and how much he makes. So I just went on Zillow and I started, I cleared everything out and I just looked for land starting in San Ramon and I removed the boundaries and went out and I started finding pieces of uh, property anywhere from $125,000, a regular lot size lot that was split off of a bigger lot in Castro mm-hmm. Valley, California all the way to $165,000, a lot that's in Sonol, that's um, mm-hmm. a beautiful wooded lot. And so this is something we're doing right now. I took three of his models. I took three of these lots. I placed the lot, the models on those lots. I sent it to my appraiser and I'm waiting for him to come back and tell me how much is this property going to be worth 
after I build this 1200 square foot home on this big lot with the right. idea <clears throat> that I build this small home, which is more affordable with the understanding that at some point in the future, the buyer of that home will build their big home. But there is sure. something that has changed. What recently changed from a lending perspective is in the old days, if you had or put an ADU on your home, we wouldn't allow you to use the income of your ADU to qualify. We mm. do now. And by the way, we allow that to occur even if the ADU is not rented. We do a rent survey on 1,200 square feet in the area, and we let that income be part of the ability for you to afford it. So when you're talking about affordability, I'm seeing affordability as different ways I can get you to buy a home that's affordable and maybe give you a little additional income. Now, agreed, if you're only putting an ADU on there and you're moving into it, you can't get rental income from that. Right, sure, that. Right, sure, right, sure. But even but if, if you are, even if what, what I like about that conceptually, right, is you're now you're taking the first two steps of the process by that entry level home and then the trade up home, but you're combining them, giving them a more affordable first step in. That's not a townhouse or a condo. It's a that's lot. Correct. You'll have a, you'll have the uh, location where the main house could go. Eventually that's not that's where you correct. put the ADU, right? You put the ADU hundred yards away or whatever makes sense. And you're you're combining the first two steps in the homeownership process in an effort to get uh, some arbitrage there on affordability for the homeowner. I think that's brilliant. What was the house? What were they worth? Just curious. Did, did, look the cost of the I'm going to call them ADUs. What were they running? About one hundred and seventy-five thousand to two twenty-five, depending on size and uh, terrain of the lot. So it's easier to build a a, a flat. I was just, yeah, I was just more for the listeners that are in other parts of the country. They're, they're going 200 and 200,000 for an ADU. I could build a whole <laughs> ass house for that. <laughs> like in what? Wichita. There is wrong yeah, with you in California. Shout out Wichita. Yeah, yeah. There may be an ADU on the back of a truck that may not be on a foundation yet. So <laughs> yeah. Clear. yeah. That's interesting. But what I'm hearing though, is this, if I put a 1200 square foot home, on a eight or 9,000 square foot lot. And if I'm able to do so in an area that's desirable, and let's just say I spend 200 grand for the lot, 200 grand for the, for the ADU for the sake of this quick discussion. Sure. I'm hearing though, that the indication of the value is somewhere between 550 and 700,000 yeah. after I do that. Sure. Right. I don't, I'm not selling it to them for that. I am going to, con I'm going to handle the financing sort of like a construction loan. You know, mm -hmm. we're going to do a lot loan and then we're going to go buy the ADU. And we're going to put it on there and then we're going to do a long term loan. So the borrower gets the benefit of that sort of sweat equity. That right. Right. So and, and I think there's some benefit to that, because at some point in the future, as their income catches up, they'll have equity in their home to be able to build their, the, the big house, if you will. Right. So sure, sure. product product. Hmm. You're going to think that I'm, I'm, you know, I'm. This is going to be a, a little bit of a trip down memory lane, but we just did it wrong, and I, I want to talk about. It. There's nothing wrong with an interest-only loan. So you're describing a hundred-year loan. That's fine. I would prefer to describe that as an IO, right? Um, mm -hmm. And we are developing right now, and it'll sound like again, it's deja vu. Um, we're working on something we call the choice loan. And the choice loan is simply this, that it, it's a, a it's the only self-modifiable loan in America today. So that you can modify your loan month after month after month. You don't have to call your, your you do not have to call your servicer. You don't have to call me and call anybody. So we'll use James as the, as the borrower. I make him the loan and he he's doing okay with his income. So he's making the 30-year fixed rate, a 30-year payment. Uh, he's doing a lot better with income and he decides, hey, I'm going to, Switching out to the 15-year payment. By the way, these payments are on his statement. Uh-oh, he has a bad month. He says, oh, man, I'm going to pay the I.O. All along, he's completely current. And mm -hmm. then he says, uh-oh, I've had a really bad couple of bad months. I'm going to pay the NEGAM. So I'm going to let him choose where he wants to go in the spectrum of things. You might say, well, <laughs> didn't yeah, just you just... Five just, world savings loan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just just in case someone's listening and freaking out right now, Chris, they're gonna say something like, uh, "We we tried that." Remember? Yeah, no, no. So time out. Yeah, so I we know. That, but we made some significant structural errors in two capacities. One, we made structural errors on who was selling it and whom we were selling it to. 
Yeah. So these loans were sold to people that did not have to require any proof of income or proof of reserve. Sure. In many cases, they did not require any down payment. And in some cases, they actually went negative and we were going above 100% loan to value, 110, right. 115. Immediately. So like, immediately. I believe, yeah. like anything else, there should be some form of certification education process for the people that are selling this product and there should be a the correct buyer in this that could be a 10 percent, 15 or 20 percent down buyer by the way world savings was standard line before they changed it to compete with wamu and countrywide was you had to put 20 percent down i know right. the very first loan i ever got in my life when teresa and i first got married was a world savings loan on our house in dublin and mm -hmm. I put 20 percent down so the point that i'm making is is that there needs to be product that speaks to affordability, but does not get the customer in trouble. Right. And it needs to be product that the, pro that the customer is aware of how it operates, whether it's fixed for three years or five years or seven years or even monthly adjustables. They need to understand what could happen with interest rates. Mm -hmm. To me, it is not going to be one fell swoop fix affordability. I think it's going to be a little bit of what the state is trying to do with SB9, a little mm -hmm. bit of what I'm trying to do with affordable homes and spaces, sure. a little bit what the market's trying to do with product. Well, and, and also, you know, when you're talking about that, there's an advocacy perspective of making sure proper bills are passed, trying to make things easier to get permits. You know, yeah. there's the environmental aspect to it. We've had these conversations a lot and it, certainly it's a, problem that some states especially california are, are truly faced with um uh i have i want to keith i'm going to take this because it feels like a little bit like product because i know it's a question that our viewers and listeners will it's very relevant to right now you are obviously acutely aware like the rest of residential real estate about all the class action lawsuits and we won't go down that road we've had lots of conversations on this pod about it but i do want to ask somebody who's involved on the mortgage side your thoughts um you know, one of the outlets that the industry is looking at is how is how do we make it available for buyers to have representation in a infrequent transaction, um, and uh, at the same time be able to afford it. In other words, is there a day or what would be the process for agents to be able to finance their compensation in the loan? Well, what's your take on it? Yeah. So let's talk about about that for just a few seconds um or minutes <laughs> I, <yeah. laughs> um, the, the these cases have yet to see the entire uh conduit gamut process of appeal there's there are multiple sort of copycat look-alike cases that are happening in the marketplace today they have not yet run the gamut of this whole thing. And it's probably a two, three or four year process before there is an actual decision on whether or not this is the new rules of the land. Today, I think you both know, so do your listeners, that both the GSEs as well as Jenny May, which includes FHA, USDA and VA, do have significant restrictions about whether or not you can finance a compensation to a seller's agent or buyer's agent. They don't mm -hmm. exist today. Yeah. By the way, it's expressly prohibited on a VA loan. Mm -hmm. If this were to become law today, no veteran could buy a property in mm -hmm. which they would have, in which they could finance their, uh, their mm -hmm. uh, buyer's commission, which is just no way that will stand by the way. I also think that if you start thinking about what happens here, most first time and affordable buyers are not able to come up with the cash to pay for their agent representation. I think what could potentially occur is there is a, an environment where the seller will have this professional representation, but the buyer will not. And I think in that scenario, you're going to crush any form of first-time home buyer or people of color or folks that have no experience in understanding that negotiating process yeah. and even what to do oh i i can you know I, I think i can negotiate the price candidly price negotiation is so low on my list of the risk <laughs> of a buyer not having strong representation 
is this a home that is going to last me for my needs? Is this the loan that's going to last me for my needs? Are there inspections and the interpretation of the inspections? And by the way, I haven't even gotten the loan documents yet. I haven't even gotten to the most treacherous part of a transaction. And that's how, what does this all mean to me? Hmm. So I think, I think there's a fair amount of people in the marketplace running around saying, Hey, you, you, you've got to do something from a lender's perspective. We're not, we're, we're watching it. We're seeing what's going on, but there's going to be some structural change that have to happen if this becomes the lay of the land. Let's, let's assume it does. So let's just make that assumption because Keith and I are really <laughs> knowledgeable about these cases more than you most. You are. In fact, I remember, um, James, you were saying to me this early, early, early on, this is going to go exactly the way it went. You predicted yeah. that right on. I wish I was wrong, to be clear. Um <laughs> What would the what what would have to, I want to just because I, you know this better this world better than anybody what would have to happen to do this NER needs to advocate with you said Fannie Freddie Ginny like in the Mortgage Bankers Association like what what would that look like in order for compensation to be able to be financed can you get like granular no one's given us this answer and I'm like what does that mean what is that well, process so when I became the chairman of the Mortgage Bankers Association <laughs> there used to be a, a group called the Big Four. They all broke apart years ago before I was a chairman from 18 through 19. And uh, back then, the big four consisted of the Mortgage Bankers Association, American Bankers Association, the National Builders Association, and National Association of Realtors. That's the okay. big four. Yeah. Um, ironically, Bob Goldberg was taking over as the CEO and president of the National Association of Realtors the same year I was taking over. So I called him up and I said, hey, we got to get the band back together. And we did. Mm -hmm. It was a treacherous first few meetings, I'll tell you that, because they were over there and we're over here. And there had been some really, really bad blood between these four groups. And so, you know, me, I'm trying to do my thing and trying to get everybody, you know, can't we all just get along kind of thing? We did. Sure. And today that group meets every single quarter and talks extensively about this and other things. Many of the topics you're talking about here are the topics they talk about, particularly affordability. It will take a lot more than just the National Association of Realtors to have a conversation with FHFA and or HUD. It will take some significant change inside of HUD to make changes on the Jenny May securitization. Today, when we securitize loans on Jenny, FHA, VA, USDA, when we do those loans, there's a rep and warrant protocol associated with those loans that is supported by uh, the um, Federal Housing Administration underneath uh, Housing Urban and Development. If you were to make some changes, it's going to change the securitization. So it's more than just simply everybody getting together. It's probably congressional change to make that occur. Right. Now, it can happen quickly, but it's still going to be a process to do so. I, I frankly... I, I, I will agree with you guys that you have a greater knowledge on this. It is stunning to me that we're turning the marketplace on its head like this. Oh, I don't even like this. All we're doing, and I'm not against lawyers. I got a bunch of them in my family. My sister's one. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you what. It, it, this just is insane that we're disassembling a system that has worked very well. And the best in the world still to this point. I yeah. so Don't get me on my soapbox with this. It yeah. be a bumpy, bumpy process. There's no hey, I have question. one question I want to follow up with you because I think this is important. There's a lot of conversation going on in our business right now. Any, you know, the National Association of Realtors, you know, it's really struggled. <laughs> Um, you know, to multiple leaders, <laughs> massive PR issues, um, you know, morale about the organizations at an all time low, at least as, as long as I've been in the business. But man, I'll tell you, there's a lot of conversations going on in our industry about how, you know, people should move away from the National Association of Realtors and do something else. Keith and I are on the bandwagon that that would be effing stupid. I didn't throw an F bomb, but like What's just that? stupid. Why not? I'm just trying to be good, Keith. I'm being Look a different person in 20. You just want me to lose the bet. The over <laughs> under for James I know. There's F over under going on. How many times I throw an yeah. F bomb this year? Yeah. Um, yeah. But like, Chris, genuinely, you have been involved with the organization. If NAR was to go away since you've, what would happen in your perspective of like our ability to for those of you, you don't, you don't who are work listening, for, for the people for that are of, listening, like yeah, you, and you can't see Chris's face because he spent a good three or four hard face rubs. Like, oh my god, I don't even <laughs> want to think about that. Just in case you're so, listening in your car. <laughs> well, I mean, genuinely, yeah. you you worked with the the organization. You work you worked at the highest level with Congress on this stuff. Like, what would happen if we did not have 
that kind of influence and power? So think about it systemically as any time. So think of think of a disassembling of the National Association of Realtors like the um, unbundling or disassembling of Ma Bell. So when you take <laughs> things that's that big, it doesn't get replaced with the same thing that big. The deregulation of the phone company back in the 80s and early 90s resulted in a bunch of small phone companies. By the way, they put them all back together eventually. Right. They all got rolled back up. Yeah. But the point that I'm making is, for the first thing is, you're not going to go from the National Association of, uh, of Realtors to the universal association of realtors right it's not it's not going to move one big group's not going to move over it will fragment and when it fragments you'll not be able to get consensus and if you can't get consensus you're not going to be able to have the same kind of influence that the national association of realtors has the truth is is that it will be devastating for the industry I, i'm telling you and if, and for just a moment with no disrespect man to all of the people listening who are practitioners it will be horrible for our consumers, horrible for consumers. Mm -hmm. Understand something. I talk about this all of the time. Most people that buy a home that do not realize the most significant impact it will have to two things. One, their mm -hmm. quality of life. And I'm not going to debate, well, you put down roots and, and we can talk about younger generation and homeownership and all that kind of stuff. The bottom line is that there is an improved quality of life if you own your home, even if it's perceived, it's still an improved quality of life. And secondly, and perhaps more importantly, you will not be able to generate wealth any other way than with real estate. Every single time I say this, people nod. Real estate creates millionaires. It always has. It creates business owners, kids that can go through college without any kind of uh, student loans, the ability to be able to retire, to be able to generationally pass down wealth. You can't do that if you're a renter. And I believe, by the way, which I'll end with this, James, I believe that the homeownership ownership rate in america will begin to go down substantially because it'll be too perilous to own a home it'll just be better for me to rent because i don't want to get it wrong and i can't afford to lose what little money i got i can't afford to get bad representation or bad advice mm -hmm. because of this kind of, of a fragmenting of the marketplace it'll be it'll be catastrophic for the the future homeowners of america preach that was good that was rap that was uh, that, yeah, was like a, that was a that was a mic drop right there. Yeah, um, I got. I just I I, can, I, I, I was I was at an event last week in New York, and I'm listening to the this new association that's trying to be created. And I understand why they're trying to create this new association. It's it's for reasons that are not invalid, but it's naive on their part to under to not understand the complexity of. And I said this. this is, I, you'll love this, Chris. I go. I go. Uh, you think you're going to replace local, state, and national governance where they're at the table already with all of the decision makers who are writing the rules. And by creating something new, you're going to fragment it. I said, I'll give you one, one more. I'm like, we enjoy as an industry this little 1099 carve out that we have where we get to have everybody as 1099s. Remember Just those days, every, Chris? Remember those days, Chris? Every, every year, yeah, every, <laughs> every single year, the National Association of Realtors is fighting to keep that. And I, I turned to the broker's room. I said, how are all you going to run your damn businesses if you have to employ every agent you've got? What are you going to do? And it was like, I hadn't thought about that. I'm like, so just shut up. Like you, you're not, you're being naive to like what it is. We need to remodel. That's why I tell people remodel it, but don't tear it down because you will cause this ripple effect through. I know, you will, I know you will not like what I'm about to say, James, but I'm going to tell you the That's National right. Association of Realtors needs not just someone like you. It needs you. It needs oh, somebody who is a thought-provoking, great yeah. communicator. You yeah, handle James. yourself extremely well. And what's more important, and I, I mean this sincerely, gentlemen, <clears throat> the reason why the National Association needs, needs a James is, is because he assembles teams like you, Keith. 
he would put I don't the do best of class on that organ <laughs> in that organization. I like California, Chris. I'm not moving. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do spend a lot of time in DC, man. So I mean, yeah, there's there's true. an element of that. That's All right, true. we've got a few more minutes, Keith. I know you have a couple more you want to throw I do. in here. So I do. Uh, this before one we, before we let him it, go is I remember when 2008 hit. I'll set this question up for just a minute, but I remember when 2008 hit. And going through that period was, was stressful. One of the things I was very worried about was it would be the first time, at least in my lifetime, where kids would sit at the dinner table and watch their families stress about housing. And I got worried that it would affect and erode that sort of aspirational homeownership. I was really happy when I discovered all of the surveys and things that NAR and Pew and other people do. All of them came back. It didn't. It, it remained and retained. Now, interestingly enough, I'm starting to see the younger, younger generation with household formation later, living with their parents longer, uh, foregoing buying last year. It was 26%, which was the lowest rate of first-time home ownership. Is this just affordable? In, in now my actual question. Is the younger generation in home ownership, is this just a different reflection of affordability or is there actually an erosion in the aspirational nature of owning a home in That's your question? I, I don't think it has anything to do with affordability. A well, a little bit. I think first it starts with philosophically. Hmm. I think home ownership, um, particularly those the kids that grew through the period of time where there was so much discussion about the over inflation of housing and the the disadvantage of having particular products and the bailout of the too big to fails and the failure of our financial institutions like Bear Stearns and, and Lehman Brothers. I think all of that painted a picture that maybe home ownership wasn't for me, number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, I do believe that there is the student loan debt has always been an impact on people's ability to be able to buy a home. My um, HR director, uh, Melissa Harborn, puts her children through school. She has triplets. Two of them are down in Arizona State. One of them's at a private school back in Washington, D.C. Um, each one of those years result mm -hmm. in about a forty dollars to $45,000 a year. This is all in tuition, housing, books, Everything. all that crap. Yep. Um, <laughs> but if you just simply do fast math, you're going to end up with a $180,000 debt that you're going to be 23 or 24. Of course, if you've got a lot of people to, to be in that debt, it's going to take eight to 10 years to get out of it, to be able to afford a house. Because look, when I was 22, 23, 24, well, I didn't have $120,000 debt. I have $120. No. And, I mean, and by the way, when I, when I was 22, if I went to borrow 120,000 or $140,000 for anything, they'd have told me no. Like it's kind of interesting. I like this, and I haven't done my own research. It's my own curiosity. I want to have it answered myself. I think when the United States government said, absolutely, make the loans, we're going to guarantee them. I think a lot of universities and colleges said, hey, this is a, a moneymaker for us. Yeah. Mm, yeah. We, students are customers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like no longer right, students. Right. Right. And we're... We're going to get paid because the bank's going to get paid by the United States of America. I don't believe, and I could be wrong. And again, you're talking to a guy that flunked his way out of high school. But the point is, I don't believe you're telling me that the Stanford Cheers. education that happened in 1990 right. is worse than the Stanford education that happened last year. There's no way. No. Nope. I'm going to tell you those educational, and by the way, it's across the board. I will tell you. Colleges and universities are making money hand over fist and the only way they can. If you mm. do not have an athletic, a strong athletic department, you're making money on your students. I have one one question to add here because that's you're we've been talking about that for a while. Like it's just it's so expensive to do anything. You can't save up enough money. You've got all this debt when you get out of college. They're like, you know, it's everybody wants to be an influencer. Um <laughs> Yeah. Here's what? what's, sorry to interrupt, James. I just looked it up real quick. Yeah. Uh, so this is, you know, these facts are quick Google facts, not real facts. But this chart that I'm looking at shows that since 2004, uh, the average tuition is has more than doubled since 2004. Hmm. What does that sound like to you? So uh, you have a product yeah. that you can double the price? Sure. Yeah. It's, the reason yeah. you're doubling the price is somebody's paying for that price. Inflation. And the only way you're paying for that is because they're getting money for free. You don't have to do anything. Fog up a glass, you get the student loan. Well, yeah. that's, I, that's my question, by the way. That That's literally the question I was going to ask. We're obviously at a point now. What is the debt at 
what are we at? A tr- what is it? I don't even know. It's six. I think it's coming some, up on two. I don't even, I can't even, I lost count. Uh, what, is there a point where this becomes a problem? Like where we actually have to start having an adult conversation about what we can and can't afford as a country? Like, are we getting close to that? Because I've heard numbers of like, if this doesn't get under control in 10 years, we're going straight off a cliff. What is your take? Well, okay. You're talking just student debt? Are you talking? No, I'm talking about, I'm talking about national debt for national deficit, the national deficit, the debt, all of it. Yes. The deficits that keep increasing our debt. Let's talk about that for just a second. The, until the gold standard, or excuse me, that the dollar is no longer the world's currency, you're fine because we just make more dollars. I mean, we're never going to be in trouble because we just keep printing more and more. Now, there is a big discussion, multiple uh, countries, including, I think, Australia, uh, China and uh, Russia that have been talking about moving off the dollars, the de facto currency. I don't see that happening anytime soon, mostly because of the United States and other countries that stay on the dollar. Is that the uh, the BRICS states? That's the BRICS uh, program that's been going on. Um, My uh, what I. Before that happens, James, and, and this is a conversation that you could probably spend a full hour on. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> We're in an election year, so I figured I'd throw it in there. So, Well, you got it in, but this yeah. is part of it. To me, something is happening as I'm watching the gaps widen. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching the, the, the middle class and lower class being stripped away from the, if you will, upper class. And you're beginning to start seeing a lot of frayed nerves. And Mm -hmm. I think that uh, there's a lot of different reasons why Donald Trump resonates with a lot of voters. And I think some of it is because they feel like they are not represented in any political party anywhere. And they feel like that they're kind of mad as hell and kind of want somebody to speak for them. Sure. Mm -hmm. There's going to be a time, I believe, and I I hope we get it under control, that that there's going to, this is going to bubble over somewhere. It has bubbled over already. And when it does, it gets suppressed. But I don't think that's going to happen in the future. I think as thing as people find that they are completely boxed out of certain opportunities, and homeownership is one of them, I believe that creates a pretty angry populace. And I think the way, and, and to, to add to that a little bit, I feel like we're just becoming so desensitized to just human plight. Like I can't stand, and I'm doing something about it, which is a conversation for some of the day about the homelessness here in the state of California. And I know we we didn't talk about it, but the the general exodus from the state of California, I read a report that the people that are leaving California are the upper level Californians, right? That are making $250,000 or $400,000 or more, which are the people that are paying the majority of the tax, which means that right. we're just going to add to our own $58 yeah. billion, dollar, yeah. trillion yeah. dollar deficit. And yet at the same time, next time you're walking on any street and you walk nearby a homeless person, take a look at the person that's next to you and see where their eyes go and they don't go to the person. Mm-hmm. They block this human out of their mind as if they're not even really a human. And to me, a society should be judged on how we treat the least fortunate. Those are those people. 22% of our homeless population are veterans. 22% are mm. veterans. I don't care how they served. They served. Yeah. 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 For goodness yeah. sakes. Yeah. So to your comment, before we get in trouble of something going off the cliff, before there's that kind of financial unrest, I think you're going to see some social unrest. It, it is in part already starting. Yeah. Yep. Well, I always love having you on because I learn tons and, uh, uh, and it's always very insightful. Hope, you also, gonna, you hit- I hope I don't get in trouble. And by no, the way, that, I mean, not, that wasn't a stump I'm not, speech. I'm not running. No, yeah. No, it's, it's a human speech, yeah, right? It's great. Like you, I love it. Uh, never you can never too often remind someone to be a humanist right to that we have to work on these things as a group and try to figure them out and it's as fractured as it's ever been we're as 
maybe not ever. I, I haven't been around a long time, you know, but as, as far as a 52 year old guy running around on the earth, I don't remember it feeling this fractured in my lifetime. My uncle who, uh, is in his early seventies said that, you know, during the, during the sixties was the last time he could possibly, or seventies or whatever. He said basically 60s. the sixties was the last time yeah. that he was like, I feel, but he's like, it's, this almost feels worse. Mm -hmm. Um, oh, I, I think it is worth James. Yeah. I think, yeah, I really do believe that we have, um, uh, uh, we are approaching an inflection point and it really worries me about what is happening. I read this art. I read this guy, he's like, he's a coach of, uh, Temple university. And this is what he wrote. He said, my grandfather walked 10 miles to work each day. My father walked five. I'm driving a Cadillac. My son is in a Mercedes. My grandson will be in a Ferrari, but my great grandson will be walking again. I asked him, why is that? He said this tough times create strong men. Strong men create easy times. Easy times create weak men. Weak men create tough times. Mm -hmm. He said to me, many will not understand but you have to raise warriors. Trial think, by uh, combat. Sorry. Trial by combat. Chris, Chris George <laughs> said we, was waiting for Keith Chris to George it. said it. We oh, should put in trial by totally combat. set that up for, I was like, here, here goes Keith. Here, he just alley-ooped that and Keith went and just literally jumped six feet and dunked <laughs> look, it. So I, I look I, here. I'm, oh, God. I'm inspired by this conversation because Chris George said he is single-handedly going to solve affordability issues in Northern California. And we should institute trial by combat. Uh, Chris run for office. You have all my votes. Uh, you got my votes, <laughs> my friend. Yeah. <laughs> All you right, to make we, us run NAR. It's only yeah, fair. seriously. Uh, Chris, genuinely, thank you again yeah. for being here. Uh, I think it, it's going to be a very popular episode. Lots of great <laughs> content in there. Um, and uh, we'll we'll have to have you back on later this year and see where things end up. So Keith yeah. and I are released our released our predictions podcast, or it's coming out here shortly. Uh, out. Yeah. And uh, by the time they hear this, um, it's out. Yeah, it'll be out by the time people hear this. So my friend, look forward thank to you. seeing you at some point soon with. Uh, with your family in the ranch and uh, we'll catch up with you then. So thanks again for having me, you guys. All right, guys, see we'll Chris. see you. It's our job to say out loud what everybody's only thinking to themselves. It's your job to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode.